Charismatic, passionate, has integrity, humble, servant, faithful, inspiring, persevering, positive, flexible, driven. This is who we are that call ourselves leaders. Helping business leaders grow themselves, their team, and their profits. This is the Entree Leadership Podcast. Now, here is your host, Ken Coleman. This is the podcast of leaders, by leaders, and for leaders. It's the Entree Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Coleman, and joined in studio today by Mr. Entree Leadership himself, the grand poobah of all things Entree Leadership, Daniel Tardy. How about that? I've for never heard those words associated yeah. with my name. Uh, I'll take it. Thank You'll you. You'll take that? That's fantastic. Your official title for the listeners at home. Uh, last time I looked at my business card, it said Vice <laughs> President of Entree Leadership. Oh, very impressive. Whatever that means. VP. It means big shot. It means we just get stuff done. That's exactly make right. Make it happen. Hey, uh, it's exciting, Daniel. We're going to have a great podcast for our listeners today. One feature conversation today, and that is Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek is fastly becoming one of the most influential and innovative voices in leadership. Uh, We'll tell you a little bit more about Simon and his new book, Leaders Eat Last, coming up in a few minutes. But let me say, buddy, first of all, it's a thrill to be in the captain's chair uh, hosting this podcast and alongside you and your team. This is really exciting stuff. Hey, we're honored to have you. And it's been fun to uh, get to a place where we can. This is the first time we've brought somebody in to as as their job description to say, hey, you're coming here to host the Entree Leadership Podcast. That's how big this thing has gotten before. Oh, geez. Uh, now I'm nervous. We've got, well, hey. See, I was are, fine until you put all that kind of expectation for on for real, man. And It uh, is, you know, it, 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 the, the reviews that we've had and the, the listeners that we've uh, continued to acquire, I mean, it's just been fantastic. And uh, the, the reason that we're here today is because we have incredible listeners who are consistently uh, spreading the word about the Entree Leadership Podcast. But uh, I'd love to stop for a second before we dive in and just hear about Ken Coleman. Uh, you have uh, a long history with Dave Ramsey and with our team, uh, have had a lot of friends here, and now you've joined us full-time to host the Entree Leadership Podcast, among uh, a few other things. So what what was it when you were coming in looking at this opportunity? Because I know you're hugely passionate about Entree Leadership, about podcasting, about radio, uh, the spoken word, yes, and the magic yes. of the spoken word. So <laughs> what, what's your vision here? Because we've talked a lot about that, but I want our listeners to hear what you're excited about when you think about this podcast. Well, when you get an opportunity to uh, take a seat on a rocket ship, you don't fight and quibble over which seat, you just sit down. <laughs> and Sheryl Sandberg kind of is credited with that quote, and it's a great statement. Uh, this is a tremendous vehicle already that is helping leaders, small business leaders, uh, entrepreneurs, in tremendous ways and so the opportunity to be a part of a piece of media because that's what this is i mean this is media this is produced for leaders and when you get behind something like that and you get to be a part of something like that that literally can change the trajectory of companies plural which means lives we're talking about entrepreneurs people who create jobs really the future of america i believe is in the class of entrepreneurs Mm. i said on the last podcast as i said in real quick with chris hogan that i'm for the rise of the entrepreneur class and that's what we're about you're about that John Falcons, the entire team, Don Haney, our producer, we care about entrepreneurs. And so from that standpoint, it was a no-brainer. And to have conversations, I get to have conversations with people like Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. We've got Malcolm Gladwell coming up, John Maxwell, Seth Godin. 
Hello, Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm just getting started. Which you've talked to a lot of these guys because if yeah, our sure. listeners remember, you've actually been on our podcast as I a have. guest. Yeah, I hawked uh, my book on this thing. Your book came out about uh, talking about the power of asking questions, and yeah. you had interviewed a lot of high-profile leaders. So I- I'm excited that Ken brings just a wealth of not only personal firsthand knowledge from the leadership world, uh, but also just a tremendous amount of experience with incredible uh, guests that we'll be having conversations with in the future. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're going to really work hard to make this podcast a buffet, if you will. We want to bring you a lot of options every time that you download us. We take you all seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we take our jobs very seriously. And so Daniel and his team and I have been working with Don Haney, our producer, to come up with more segments that meet you where you're at. Because at the end of the day, you folks are going hard. We're talking to men and women who are literally creating jobs and creating ideas and solving problems. And that's what I love about entrepreneurs more than anything, Daniel. They see problems Mm -hmm. and they say, that could be fixed, that should be fixed. And as a result, we create jobs mm. and we create revenue and, and they, we change and they take the risk and say, I can fix it and yeah. I'm willing to try. So this is the ultimate change agent class. So we're really excited and there's going to be some changes coming up, but it's going to be the same podcast that you have come to know and rely upon because we're going to bring you wonderful content. We want to answer your questions. To that end, Daniel, tell people how they can email us because we want to hear from them. If they have suggestions going forward, you want a segment that maybe you have longed for and we haven't done it, what would you say to them? Fire us an email at podcast at entreleadership.com or send a tweet out uh, at entreleadership and then your Twitter handle. I want to make sure everybody's following you. They can stay tuned in with uh, where you're at when you're out on the road with our team. Very simple, at Ken Coleman. Okay. And uh, we'd love to hear from you because we want to know what you want. We're very, very, very excited. Now, I want to also mention that at the end of the podcast, we have a couple of special announcements. We've got a great fall event lineup coming. I know you and your team are working hard on that, so we'll get to that. But we do want to make sure you know uh, that we've got some special offers. We'll mention that at the end of the podcast. But I'm thrilled to be here, man. I really am. And uh, what are you excited about as we begin to work together to take this podcast to another level? Well, in working with you up to this point and the interview process and you engaging with our team, one thing that just stands out is just the amount of ideas uh, for segments, the amount of guests uh, that you have in your personal Rolodex, and just all the incredible things that, uh, from an energy standpoint, and just focus. You know, we, we've had some great um, hosts here, and of course, Chris Hogan is still going to be around. You guys Absolutely. are still going to hear from him, uh, but he's all over the road, and it, it's just challenging to get a lot of traction and momentum. And so, to really say, hey, we're we're for real. We want to take this to the top, and we want this to be the source of hope for small business owners who are transformed by these entree leadership principles and who are inspired and who are able to not only get inspiration and the warm fuzzies, but actually take this and apply it to their business to grow themselves, to grow their teams, to grow their profits. And uh, you shared that you have uh, a passion for that vision. And ultimately, uh, passion is what counts when we're looking for uh, people to join the team. And so we couldn't be more proud and more excited uh, to have you here with us, Ken. Well, I appreciate it. And by the way, Daniel is currently reading my book, One Question, so he can become a better question asker. So we'll just see. We'll see if he learns. We'll Well, see. We'll bring you back. Uh, was this you? I don't know who to attribute this to, but someone said the quality of your experience is in direct proportion to the quality of the questions you ask. That is and true. I thought, oh, I've said something similar, that. but that is so true. And I got to mention Chris Hogan on the road as we speak, as we record, he is on his way to the Cleveland Browns training camp. He's going to be t- teaching and speaking to Johnny football. 
So we're going to get Hogan in I don't know how he here soon off. and see if Johnny Manziel, for you football fans out there, did Johnny Football pay attention to our very own Chris Hogan? He's more important These than These are the us. questions that our podcast listeners want to know. And so I shall get you the behind the scenes Stay tuned. of that. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, let's get right to our feature conversation of this podcast. Simon Sinek. Uh, my production notes say that he was our very first guest of the very first Entree Leadership podcast. And uh, this was when he was talking about the why, right? The question, the why. Start with why. Start with mm-hmm. why. Fantastic book. And now his new book, Daniel, is called Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Uh, if you haven't gotten the book, trust me, run hard. Go online, get this book tonight. If you're passionate about leaders and leadership and how it creates culture, you need to get this book. Here is my conversation with Simon Sinek. Simon, it's always a pleasure to read your books and to get to talk with folks like you. And before we dive into Leaders Eat Last and, and some of the great content of the book, I wanted you to tell our listeners today, where does the fascination that you have uh, for leadership, where does that come from? What's the source of that? Well, it's, it's not that I'm particularly fascinated with leadership. It's that I'm fascinated by human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Gordon Bethune used to say a long time ago, I used to be one. Um, <laughs> That's right. You know, I, I, all of my work is semi-autobiographical. Um, so Start With Why was, was the result of me going through this loss of passion where I, I wasn't enjoying the work that I was doing anymore. And uh, even though superficially uh, everything was going my way, I just I didn't want to wake up and do it again. And Leaders Eat Last was the challenge I had where I was, you know, spending time with these remarkable human beings in the military, and I, I saw demonstrated this amazing trust and cooperation. You know, they, they would they would risk their lives for people sometimes they didn't even like. You know, mm-hmm. and yet in the business world, you know, we don't even like to give up credit for things. So, you know, it became sort of like, why, why can't I spend time with people like that all the time and without having to be in uniform? Like, what, where does trust and cooperation come from? And so, my fascination is just sort of my own desire to live sort of a, a happier, more fulfilling life, like like anybody. Um, and necessarily, it always seems to come back to leadership because there is a, there's always a person or a small group of people who take it upon themselves to take responsibility for the, for the lives of those who work for them. And so, and so necessarily, to live the life that I want to live requires some good leadership. Uh, one of my favorite quotes on leadership of all time is from John Quincy Adams, and of course it is sourced in the forward to your book. And I want you to comment on this because this is a wonderful statement. John Quincy Adams once said, or wrote, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. And you just mentioned in your last answer this idea that you saw it, uh, true leadership, pure leadership, pure sacrifice uh, demonstrated in our military leadership, but we fail to see a lot of this in the private sector, certainly in the government sectors and beyond. Uh, back to the Adams quote, uh, it, Talk about that. What he really means there, this idea of inspiring others, and how you saw that uh, in the Marine Corps. Well, um, you know, we live in a, in a world these days where it seems that people are more uh, driven by uh, seeing them, themselves achieve more, <laughs> dream more, and inspire mm-hmm. more, and, and, and less about others. Um, and and so when I sat down with Lieutenant General George Flynn, who, who wrote that quote that you're talking about, uh, he wrote that in the forward of my book. Um, you know, when I, when I met with him for the first time, I asked him, what makes the Marines so great? And he said to me simply, officers eat last. And what he meant by that is, is, in the Marine Corps, they view leadership not necessarily as simply a rank, but also as a responsibility. 
And if you go to any marine chow hall anywhere in the world, you'll see the marines line up in terms of rank order when it's time to eat. The most junior person eats first, and the most senior person eats last. It's not in any rule book, and no one tells them they have to. Again, it's because of the way they view leadership. And we in the private sector very often, we believe that officers eat first. If you're of higher rank, then you should be able to go first, eat first, get first. And, and I took tremendous, you know, even in the entrepreneurial world, you know, entrepreneurs are always told, you know, pay yourself first, you know. And I saw the complete opposite in this organization that was, you know, eminently high performing and, and, and who understands that the success of the group is the success of the organization. Um, and so I'm just, I'm totally driven, by, I'm totally inspired by that idea. I am as well. And I've got to ask you, Simon, do you have an opinion? I'm sure you do, but uh, why is it that there is this gap between military culture and leadership culture in business, government, and beyond? Why do you think that uh, it hasn't carried over, if you will? I mean, look, it's not so much military culture versus business culture. There's, there's pockets of good leadership in well, sure, that's business, right. and there's some bad leadership in the military. So we tend to see a larger propensity of, of good leadership in the military for the very simple reason that the stakes are higher. Mm-hmm. And this is why the lessons are more exaggerated. And it's not that the military knows everything about leadership. It's just that because the stakes are so much higher, you know, human lives really are at risk, that, that the lessons are, are much easier to see about the importance of truth and honesty. If we don't trust that our leaders are telling us the truth, if we don't believe they're telling us the truth, then, then the whole system breaks down and people die. Well, we don't think of it that way in the business world, you know, but the reality is that the human mind, the human body, reacts to information that is given to us in terms of life and death. In other words, the lessons are, are just as stark. Um, and so I think the reason it's different is, is, is because of a series of decisions that have been made over the course of you know, the past 50 or 60 years that have compounded into something quite negative. And you started to see in the 80s and 90s, for various reasons, um, lots of decisions that were made to improve the short-term gains of a few. And it worked really well in the 80s and 90s. You see the, you see the, uh, the repeal of a, of a large amount of Glass-Steagall, for example, uh, which, which was uh, passed after the Great Depression, to work to ensure that there would not be another Great Depression, to work to ensure that there would not be another seismic um, uh, uh, stock market crash. And the amazing thing is it worked. Mm. We had zero significant stock market crashes for 50 years mm-hmm. after the Great Depression. Zero. And then after the repeal of Glass-Steagall, we had one in 1987, we had the dot-com boom, and then we had 2008. We've had three in this, sh- in this short period of time since. In other words, what we're starting to experience now are the effects of some of the decisions that were made during the 80s and 90s. The concept of shareholder supremacy was a theory put forward in the late 70s and embraced in the 1980s. The idea of using people on mass layoffs as one of the first options to balance the, balance the books was a theory, a practice that only really began in the early 1980s. It's common practice today. But, but the point is, is that there were a series of decisions meant for short-term gains for a few that now have become standard business practice, and we are suffering the results of those decisions made back 20 and 30 years ago. No, oh, it's great insight. Uh, one of, I think, one of the just unbelievably powerful statements uh, in this book, Leaders Eat Last, why some teams pull together and others don't, uh, plays off this idea we've been talking about, the stakes being higher, if you will, uh, when we're talking about life and death in military leadership, but the, but the truths transfer to business and beyond. Yeah. Uh, and that is this statement. You wrote this. When people have to manage dangers from inside the organization, the organization becomes less able to face dangers from outside. And that's a simple statement, but I think profoundly powerful. Uh, help leaders understand that truth. Sure. 
So when I talk about feeling safe at work, I don't mean the absence of danger. I mean the absence of danger internally. So, for example, you take uh, a military unit that's in a forward operating base. Of course, there's significant danger. Danger threatens them every single day. But the danger is on the outside. They don't fear each other. In fact, they know they can trust each other to watch each other's backs. You know? Even people they don't necessarily like, they know that when danger threatens, they will work together. That's what makes, that's what makes it work so well. And uh, those, the, that analogy transfers to the modern world perfectly well, which is there are dangers on the outside of the company. There's our competition that's threatening to steal our cu- customers or frustrate our growth. There's the ups and downs of a stock market. There's the, uh, there's the instability of, of an economy. All of these things are a constant. We have no control of them. And these are dangers that threaten us from the outside. So the question is, do we face dangers on the inside? Do we fear each other? Any organization where it's general practice for people to send CYA emails yeah, is an organization right. where people fear each other. Yes. Any organization where it's common practice for employees to keep folders uh, on, on, on their good work or on the irresponsibility of others so that if anything were to bite them in the, in the ass, that they would have this folder to protect themselves, these are demonstrations of people taking action, spending time and energy to protect themselves from each other. And every minute we spend doing that to protect ourselves from each other is a minute we've taken away from protecting the organization from the outside dangers or missing the opportunities outside. Mm-hmm. In other words, the more we protect ourselves from each other, the more we weaken the organization as a whole. I saw a scene play out. Of, I, was boarding a, uh, I was waiting to board a plane, and there was a, a guy who attempted to board the plane uh, 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 earlier than his group was called, you know, and I saw the gate agent basically berate him. I couldn't believe it. And so I said something. I said, why do you have to treat us like that? Why can't you treat us like human beings? And the gate agent said to me, quote, if I don't follow the rules, I could get in trouble or lose my job. Mm. All she revealed to me was that she fears her own company. She fears her leadership. The reason we love Flying Southwest is not because they have some mystical ability to hire great people. It's because the people who work there don't fear their leaders. Yes. They don't fear each other. The result is we get treated better. That's right. So when someone is preoccupied with their own safety from their own organization, guess who suffers? Us. When someone does no longer fear each other, then the person who benefits, the group who benefits, is, the, is not only the customer, but the, the amount of idea exchange and energy exchange and innovation. All you know, people are much more willing to share ideas and share learning with people they trust. If we don't trust each other, we hoard all the information because we believe that's where our value comes from. We use that as our security so we can't get laid off because we know more than everybody else Mm. to the detriment of the company. Yes. And see, what we're speaking here to, folks, is culture. And and I want to stay here for a moment because uh, you source a great story in the book. I'll let you set it up. The CEO, Bob Chapman. And this is what you write here. And I want to set you up to take this. But you write, Bob Chapman did not set out to change the employees – he set out to change the conditions in which the employees operate to create cultures that inspire people to give all they have to give simply right. because they love where they work. This is a great story and a great lesson for entrepreneurs. So um, Bob Chapman um, has a different view on leadership. He recognizes and states quite, quite often that no one wakes up in the morning with the desire to go to work to be managed. No one wakes up to be <laughs> That's right, that's right. You know, we wake up to, to be led. We want to be led. Nobody wants to be managed. And so what's the point of hiring managers? We need leaders. 
And he also understands that we are social animals and we respond to the environment we're in. In other words, you can take good people, put them in a bad environment, and they're capable of bad things. You can take people whose society has given up on, put them in a good environment, and they're capable of remarkable things. Mm. And Bob understands that. And he understands if he can create the right conditions, that people will take care of themselves, take care of each other, and take care of the business. Like, that's how it works. He's committed to taking care of the people. So one of the stories I told about Bob was this wonderful story when he was at a wedding. And he's sitting there in the pews watching this wedding happen, and he sees the father walk the bride uh, down the aisle. And then ceremonially, the father gives away his daughter mm-hmm. to her future husband. And then he goes and sits down in his seat. And Bob sort of saw this. He, he sort of, it's, 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 it, 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 it sparked an idea. He realized that this father has devoted his life with sacrifice for his baby girl, for his, this, his precious baby girl, and now both ceremonially and kind of in actuality, gives her away with the hope that her future husband will sacrifice and look after her equally, if not more, than he has. Mm-hmm. And she will take his name symbolically and traditionally to show that she's joining a new tribe, that she's joining a new tribe who will look after her. And Bob realizes this is the responsibility of every CEO, that every single person who works in his company is someone's son and someone's daughter. And they have given him their son and their daughter with the hope that he will look after them with as much intensity as they have looked after their own children. He realizes that was his responsibility, these, the lives, the precious lives of these sons and daughters. Mm. And so... This, this understanding, this metaphor, really guides Bob in a lot of the decisions he makes and the way he creates conditions. And just like a good parent, we offer our kids opportunities. We allow them to fail. We allow them to pick themselves up sometimes, and sometimes we pick them, we pick them up for them. Sometimes we have to discipline them. We offer them opportunity and education. But most of all, most of all, they get unrequited love. Yes. We love them. We trust them. And though they may not be perfect, we would never do anything to hurt them. And if danger were to threaten them, we would sooner risk our own lives to protect our children. We always feed our children first. And so Bob embraced a lot of these same lessons that I was learning existed in the Marine Corps, even though he had zero connection with the military, uh, uh, any of the branches of the military. He came to these conclusions uh, himself and understood that these are very, very human uh, values, rather than business values or military values. They're human values. Absolutely. And for the cynics in our audience, or those who maybe think, well, this is romanticism here, uh, yeah. there's some data in the book where uh, I want to talk about this, because it seems to me that this data and what you just shared, Simon, takes the pressure off of leaders who are always thinking about performance and training and all these type of things. You mentioned in the book that only 20% of Americans actually love, love their job. So it seems to me, Simon, that, that if I'm a leader, I'm thinking, hey, this takes the pressure off. If I just love my people, uh, we're going to see improvement. Do you believe that's true? Well, you know, th- these ideas are not new. Yeah. And the companies that seem to outperform their competition, we very often sort of ignore them and call them outliers. So Herb Kelleher, the, uh, the, the, the former CEO of Southwest Airlines, he, he talked all the time about you put your employees first, your employees will take care of the customers, the customers will take care of the numbers, and the numbers will take care of the shareholders. Like, he talked about it all the time, which is that the the employees must always come first. And an organization hailed for remarkable customer service did not believe that the customer comes first. They believe the employee comes first, you know? Yeah. 
um, you know, there, there's, there's case study after case study after case study that proves this over and over again. The problem is, is that most of our CEOs of least, at least uh, public uh, corporations are incentivized by short-term gains, and most of them don't last very long. They, 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 don't, they don't stay in the job for very long. And so the entire incentive system is for them to make decisions that are good for the short term. The result is they may make money and they may do very well in the short term, and at the same time they damage the organization as a whole. You know, we hail GE and Jack Welch for, for, for being remarkable as one of our modern great business leaders. However, you know, GE may have done brilliantly well in the 80s and 90s, but they needed a $300 billion bailout after, the, after, the, uh, after 2008 from the government. So what kind of strong foundation was that where they literally were almost uh, bankrupt because without, without the help of somebody else? That's right. And though they may have performed well in the short term, it was, it's not a stable uh, organization. Even if you look at the stock price, it's, it's like a roller coaster, ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you time it at the right timing, you might have made a ton of money. Um, if you compare that to a company like Costco that does believe in putting their people first, and Wall Street has constantly criticized them for investing too much in their employees and their customers and not enough in their shareholders, has accused them of having a stock, flat stock price. Yes, if you look at it in the course of a quarter, it looks pretty flat. But if you zoom out and look at it since the beginning, that it, since it w- first went public in December of 1985, you see a slow, steady, very stable growth. If you invested a dollar in Costco and a dollar in GE the day that Costco went public, you would have made 600% on your money in GE, you would have made 600% on your money in the S&P 500, and 1,200% on your money in, in Costco. In other words, it is good for the shareholder. Mm. It's just not a roller coaster. Yeah. And all too often, we treat the stock market like betting, like gambling. I bet on your new CEO. I bet on your product. I bet on your merger and your acquisition. Investing, we invest in things like the future. We invest in things like our children. We invest in things like education. Investing is about waiting to see the fruits of our investments. It's about belief in our children. And if we invest it properly, you get Costco. And I don't have a problem, per se, with the gambling uh, profile. The problem is, is that we have an unbalanced. Too many of the companies are run uh, with betting rather than investing. Boy, that is a great statement. Earlier, you mentioned the airline employee who was terrified, you know, because of breaking the rule and, and what yeah. would happen. I mean, she was just worried about the penalty instead worried of about the reaction. That's yeah. right. That's right. Instead of the principle, if you will. And um, you have a whole chapter dedicated uh, to this. Chapter nine, folks, in the book is called "The Courage to Do the Right Thing," knowing when to break the rules. Is the idea there? And and, and I, entrepreneurs by nature. Uh, we kind of sense when to do this, but I want you to to uh, break this idea down. This idea of rules are, rules matter, but there are times where we've got to have the courage to just do what we know is right, regardless of what the rules say. Absolutely. So rules are there for 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 the norm, and they're absolutely designed to keep the system running and keep it in order. and And the rules are good. There are always extenuating circumstances where the rules no longer apply, and 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 in those cases. We have to trust the human beings to know what to do. In other words, we rather that they don't defer to the rules. That's right. right? The rules are for normal operation. And sometimes the rules provide for, uh, for, for the exceptions and for some of the, the extremes, but, but they can't provide for all of them. And this is why experience matters. And this is why trust matters. And this is why giving control to the people who have experience, who, who, who are on the front line, because they usually know what's the right thing to do. The, the example I gave, was, um, it's a true story, by the way, of an air traffic controller, yeah. a very experienced air traffic controller. 
and he was uh, monitoring a flight flying from uh, the Northeast down to Florida. And while in flight, the, the plane had an emergency. It was having, they had smoke in the cockpit, which is like, for any pilot, it's like yes. the worst. Yes. You don't know what it is, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know if it's going to get worse, and you just want to get that plane down. The problem is there are certain rules about air traffic control, and those rules are there to keep the airways safe. For example, on this particular day, there was a military exercise, and there was military airspace cordoned off, and, and commercial flights aren't allowed to fly into that airspace, for obvious reasons. Planes are not a f- allowed to fly um, within 1,000 feet um, above or below them, for obvious reasons. Planes are not allowed to fly within five miles of each other if they're on the same altitude, for obvious reasons. And so what he did was, there was a, there's a plane beneath him, and if he was going to put this, this plane that was in trouble down on the ground, he had to fly within the five miles um, uh, uh, exception, and he did it anyway. He didn't ask permission, he just did it. And he simply told the plane beneath him, by the way, there's going to be a plane coming off your, th- off your, off your 9 o'clock, he's, in, he's declared a mayday, I just need to get him down. He repeated that three times until he got this plane on the ground. He broke tons of rules. Yes. Okay? Sure. And of course he didn't get in trouble, because we trusted the human being who knows what to do, and we would rather he do that than, than follow the rules. And this is the point. In other words, there are many circumstances when we know what the quote-unquote right thing to do is, which is different from when people ignore, uh, when there's no sense of the right thing to do. Um, I know a story of a, of a military aircraft where the pilots were being, they were, they, were, uh, they, they were stupid, and they accidentally flew into Iranian airspace, and they got in trouble. I know another story where there was an emergency, and these pilots chose to fly into Iranian airspace to prevent emergency from happening, and they were commended. Mm-hmm. Same rule was broken. The difference is one did it knowingly and by choice, and the other one did it because uh, uh, of, of ignorance, right? Yes. The same thing. The rule is not preeminent. It's the reason we broke the rule that matters. Mm. Another phrase from the book that I love and our time is getting nigh, so I want to give you time to take this. But I think this is a great statement and a great challenge to leaders. You wrote, in physics, the definition of power is the transfer of energy. Organizations and leaders operate exactly the same way. Now, we can read that, Simon. We know what that means. But I think it's a whole other issue to lead that way and to lead transformatively. Yeah. So... It's a wonderful idea, you know, the idea of a light bulb. Think about, we talk about the power of a light bulb. We know that a 100-watt light bulb has more power than a 40-watt light bulb, right? Yeah. Well, what's happening in physics is it's transferring more electricity into heat and light, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the transfer of energy that creates power. Leadership works exactly the same way. It's the leader that's able to transfer power. It's the leader that's able to give more authority those on the front line that actually becomes more powerful, right? So the great leaders are not the ones that keep all the power to themselves. That's an, an, first of all, it's an unstable model. That's why dictatorships are not stable, Mm -hmm. not to mention the fact it it foments uh, uh, rebellion, right? The the leaders that have the power are the leaders that have the people. That's right. And the leaders that have the people are the ones that give their people a vision and 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 a destination to pursue, and then trust them to know what to do to get there. The most powerful companies with the most powerful leaders aren't necessarily the ones with all the authority. They're the ones who divest the authority to others. And this is what makes them so remarkable and so high-performing. And the reason they're, they're, they're great is not because they do well in the short term. It's because they will continue to thrive for generation after generation after generation. Wow. I'm going to ask you the final question, Simon. Uh, I've always loved to ask authors what they learned 
from a process? Because when you write a book, any book, and certainly a book like this, inevitably you come away with something that maybe you saw from a different angle or maybe something you observed differently. Uh, if yeah. you could just give us one example of something uh, that, that pops the top of mind that you learned in writing this book. You know, writing is a solitary experience. And even when you work with others, at some point you have to sit down and write. It's a very lonely affair. Yes. And this book was very, very difficult to write. You know, it was complex. I'm taking a messy subject like human behavior and trying to organize it in a straight line, in a linear fashion. And it was, it was really so, so difficult. And there's one experience I had where I gave up. I literally gave up. I decided I couldn't do it. It was too hard. It was about 10 o'clock at night. I got up from my desk, and I just went for a long walk. And I literally was planning in my head how I was going to get out of this. You know, I didn't, I'd give the money back to the publisher for the advance, um, you know, I'd suffer a little embarrassment and humiliation, but it would pass, and at the end of the day, it'll be fine. You know, I was literally, I was literally giving up and figuring out a way how to get out of this, because I couldn't do it. Mm. And so I called a friend of mine who used to be in the Air Force, uh, he's Air Force Special Operations, uh, and I called him and I said, what do you do when you don't think you can do it? What do you do when you don't think you wow. can do the mission? I asked him. You know, the first thing I did, I called him, I said, I need you. He goes, what do you need? You know, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and uh, uh, he said, and he tells me a story. He says, we had this mission in Afghanistan. He was, uh, or, or wherever it was. And they were flying, he was flying Pavlos at the time, which we don't fly anymore. Mm. He said, it was a suicide mission, and everybody knew it. And he said, it wasn't one of those missions that even the sacrifice was worth the result. He says, because the mission would have failed, and we would have lost guys. And he says, it was known to everybody. It was a suicide mission. And... They were getting their helicopters ready to go, and his wingman, who would be flying next to him, uh, turns to him and says, what do we do? Like, do we refuse to fly? Like, what do we do? And uh, uh, Johnny Quest, his call sign, turns to his friend, turns to his wingman, and says, we go. This is what we chose to do, and so we go. Mm. And it ended up that the mission ended up being canceled, thank goodness, and they didn't have to fly it. And then he said to me, he says, Simon, you chose to do this. He says, you have no choice. Mm-hmm. You have to do this. This is what you chose to do. And, and you believe, the reason you chose to do this is because you believe the value, the commitment, you believe the mission that, that was so worth it, that it was worth any sacrifice to advance the common cause. Did you not take it for that reason? Yes. He said, did you do it for the money? I said, no. He said, did you do it for anything else besides advancing the vision? I said, no. He says, well, if you believe it's worth it, you have no choice. You have to do it. Wow. There was no sugarcoating or anything. And I turned around and went back and started writing. <laughs> That's so good. That is so good. Well, Simon, so let me... What I learned is that none of us can do anything without the help of others. That's right. That's what I learned. We have, our courage comes from the courage of others. Oh, wow. That's good. Well, we don't have courage. It's okay to borrow it from others. Wow. It's, you, know, when, you know, when you do the Marine Corps marathon, there are Marines who run the marathon in full gear, right? Yes. And when the Marines are struggling and they don't think they can do it, they scream out, motivate me. Motivate me, they scream out. They don't scream out, I don't think I can do it. They scream out, motivate me. In other words, they make it the team's responsibility to keep everybody on the team going, and I wow. love that. Wow, that is so rich. Isn't that great? Oh, it's good. Well, Simon, uh, i got to tell you, I'm confident in saying this on behalf of our entire Entree Leadership podcast audience. We're grateful, uh, not for just this book, that you finished, that you finished well. And I can tell you that those who read this and leaders who desire to get better and learn from this book, they will be better. And we're better off for this conversation. We know you're a busy guy, and so we appreciate your time as always. It's my pleasure. Thanks for giving me a forum to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. Well, again, I want to thank Simon Sinek, a very busy speaker and writer. And uh, it, we, we take this 
this kind of opportunity very seriously for a guy to give us his time, and he's very generous, and I know you all are better for it. Daniel, uh, so much we could talk about there. Man, I, what a I, great conversation. I want to talk to you about this. I want to set this up because I want to go back to something I said in the interview, this idea. Bob Chapman, one of the CEOs that he profiles in the book, and this is what Simon wrote about him, and I want you to weigh in on this from your Entree Leadership experience. He said, Bob Chapman did not set out to change the employees – He set out to change the conditions in which the employees operate, to create cultures that inspire people to give all they have to give simply because they love where they work. Daniel, this is not a pipe dream. This is reality. It can be achieved. I think it's tempting as times for us as leaders to feel like uh, we need to control people because we're used to controlling circumstances. We're used to imposing our will on the marketplace. We're used to fixing problems, fixing systems. We cannot control people, but we can control the environment. Yes, We can control the culture. We can control um, the things that we fight for, the things that we stand for, the things that we say, we believe in this principle and we're going to stand firm here. And people will step up or they'll step out based on those calls that we make as leaders. And so I, I think what I hear in that is you can't force people to do what you want them to do. All you can do is create a culture, create a an ecosystem where the right people want to hang out there, where the the eagles flock in and the buzzards flock out, and ultimately that's challenging because uh, we want to control it. Uh, we want to we want to just force our will into that thing, uh, but we can't. So that's the temptation we fight as leaders. Now I mentioned this in the interview with Simon, but I got to ask you practically. It seems to me that that would take a lot of pressure off of our entrepreneurs and our leaders out there that they don't have to worry about changing or overtraining. Now, training's, training works and training is a necessity. However, doesn't this take the pressure off of us if we adopt this idea that, hey, I want to train them, I want to build into them, but at the end of the day, I can affect the culture a lot easier than I can individual behavior, correct? It, it completely takes the pressure off if I don't have to have a different team tomorrow. And so the lesson oh, here good. as leaders is we have to start upstream mm-hmm. with enough lead time to where we're creating the culture and the environment so that over time the right people show up. If we need the right people tomorrow and we're trying to force buzzards to turn into eagles today because the vendor or the customer or the whatever, the thing's on fire and we have to fix it right now and it has to be this huge quantum leap for somebody to grow personally in order for that solution to work, it, by that point we're screwed. We don't, we don't have enough time to course correct. So I think the lesson here is as leaders, if we want to feel the, the pressure release and not have to feel that responsibility, we have to start early enough uh, to create the environment so that by the time the problem shows up, we get the right team in place. Mm-hmm. The other thought that occurs to me with this story, and, and for you leaders out there who have just taken over a situation, whether you bought a company uh, or you're coming into a new leadership position and there's already a pre-existing culture, here's one thought that I want you to chew on. You cannot immediately change all those people and what they believe about the company, the values in you, as Daniel said. But what you can do are small little culture changes. You know what I mean? It could be as simple as uh, corporate activities, if you will. And I'm, when I mean corporate, I mean corporate as in community. Mm-hmm. And, or it could be scenery change. Little itty-bitty things like that that immediately change the environment, which is a part of the culture. So uh, if you're starting something new, taking over someplace new really think about don't get so hung up in strategy just be simple and do something that is so very different than what has been done prior and keep it around experience and people and i think you'll see at least some positive reaction as you begin to gain 
credibility and trust along the way. Well, so, credibility is is an operative word there. I think, and, yeah. and I think about the the axiom of you know, people don't know how they don't care how much you know till they, they know, know how, how much you care. care. Yeah. So uh, you have to establish trust right out of that's the gate. Right. If you don't have trust, you can't take your team yeah. anywhere. So that's good. Good yeah. word. Good stuff. All right, Daniel, we've got a great fall coming up very quickly. We just want to cover our event lineup. It's going to be fantastic. Tell us what's on the calendar. We will be all over the map uh, with our one day events, and uh, specifically, I want to underscore our Entree Leadership Master Series event. Still has some room left. This is the one that Dave personally teaches here at our office uh, for five straight days, drinking out of a fire hydrant of uh, content from Dave, uh, from our leadership team. You can sit down one-on-one with uh, our leaders and get mentoring on site. Uh, It's just an incredible VIP experience. Uh, I think we've got about 30 seats left for that event. It's filling up quickly. You think, well, that's not until November. Uh, I I can wait. I'll see how my schedule works out. Guys, by the end of August, it'll be gone. That ship is sailing. So November 9th through the 15th, lock in your seat today. Uh, Just give us a call at 888-22-PEACE. Ask about Entree Leadership Master Series. 888-22-PEACE and the website? EntreeLeadership.com. EntreeLeadership.com. Daniel Tardy, give us your Twitter handle. If people want to reach out to you, are you on Twitter? Please tell me you're on Twitter. I got a hot. Well, I'm on there. They can find me. It's Daniel Tardy, oh, but boy. I don't tweet. I, I sense that you're not engaged fully. Well, I wasn't engaged with my kids fully. Oh, I had to offload off oh, Twitter. He smacks it That's back to me dig. across That's not the a neck. Dig. I just, I was always looking at my phone instead Hold on of their. One second, I'm faces. deactivating my Twitter account real quick <laughs> so I can be dad of the year. No, that's good stuff. They should, they should talk to you on Twitter because you're good. that kind of guy. <laughs> hey, we'd love to hear from you. At Ken Coleman is my Twitter handle, of course, the Mothership brand, at Entree Leadership. We'd love to hear from you. And again, send us your thoughts. We have a new segment coming up called Ken's Electronic Mail. Just that sounds a little, fun. A little fun. We want to hear from you. What do you want to hear from? Did the podcast help you in some way? Please email us your comments, podcast at entreleadership.com. Well, folks, that is going to do it for my Maiden Voyages host. It was fun. Hope you had a blast. You killed it, man. Oh, it was great fun. I want to thank Simon Sinek. And on behalf of Daniel Tardy, our producer, Don Haney, and the entire Entree Leadership team, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon.